Well, normally when I walk up here, the first thing I do is have you open your Bibles. But I'm going to do something a little different at the beginning. I have a special announcement that I want to make this morning. And I asked Pastor Mike if he would give me a few extra minutes up here so I could make this announcement right before the sermon, just to make sure we had everybody in the auditorium. Uh, The pastors and elders are proposing a new strengthened statement of faith that we want to recommend to the church to be voted on at our annual meeting in January. It looks like this. And you will find it out at the Information Center. We have enough copies out there that you can take one per family, and we are very much encouraging you to do that. If we vote on this at the annual meeting in January, it would replace the current statement of faith in the church constitution. Now, let me just explain a little background to this. This statement of faith is actually taken from the Master's Seminary out in California where John MacArthur is the president. Uh, The pastors and elders took this statement of faith and we have tweaked some of the areas of the statement to fit the long-held doctrinal positions of First Baptist Church. Uh, But for the most part, it was taken right from their statement of faith at the the, uh, seminary. Now, if you remember back in September, I shared with you about the four units of leadership at First Baptist Church. And if you recall, it is the responsibility of the elders, vocational elders, the pastors, and the non-vocational elders. It is their responsibility to protect the flock and to take primary leadership in the church for theological and doctrinal issues in the church. The statement of faith was also sent to the deacons about three weeks ago for their review. And so what we want to do is we would like to take the next seven weeks to have you look over the document. So you are going to have seven weeks between now and the annual meeting, the third Wednesday evening of January, to look this over. As I mentioned, it's available at the Information Center in the foyer. Please feel free to interact with and contact any of the pastors or elders uh, during that period of time if you have questions or thoughts. Now, here are some thoughts for you to keep in mind as you read through this proposed statement of faith. First, the beliefs stated in the statement of faith are identical to what our church has always believed. Nothing has changed. So don't worry. Okay? Don't worry. Nothing has changed. We have have sought to stay true to the biblical beliefs our church has always held to. So then the question is, why then have a new strengthened statement of faith? Well, this statement of faith, I believe, is even stronger than our current doctrinal statement. And here's why. First of all, it has specific scripture references embedded in every paragraph. We have had a wonderful statement of faith that I think has been in place here, as far as I know, since back in the 60s. And for whatever reason, when those godly people uh, formed that statement of faith, 
they never actually put the specific scripture references in the statement itself. And that's something I've always wanted to do. Um, this has kind of been a long desire of mine uh, to make sure that when you read through those statements, you know exactly where they come from the Bible. If we're going to say that the Bible is our only authority, then we need to make sure we know where our beliefs come from. Secondly, it addresses this new statement of faith, addresses some doctrinal issues that are not included in our current statement, but have always been held to and preached from the pulpit at this church. So it really is an effort to define what we really have always, always believed as a church. Also, this new strengthened, that's how I like to refer to it, this new and strengthened statement of faith addresses some cultural issues that the church has had to confront for the last two decades, at least. Um, I say the church, not just our church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as a whole. For example, an obvious example that's in here is the definition of marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And that is just something that we have been advised needs to be included in your very statement of faith, what you believe. I want you to know that this statement of faith was developed by theologians and Bible scholars that we can thoroughly trust. The staff, the professors, the scholars at the Master's Seminary are the ones who put this together. And I think they've done an excellent job with it. As I worked on this over a long period of time, I looked at a lot of different statements of faith. And I thought this by far, one, was so biblical. And number two, so accurately reflects what this church has always stood for and always believed. Fourth... When a person reads through this statement, and this is a part I really like, it's like going through a mini course on the essentials of the Christian faith. This document is something that we can put in your hands and say, read it through again and again and again. It's something you can use with your family. Now, some of the terms might have to be defined and explained for younger children, but this will really help all of us to say, what is it that we believe? Do you know that? I ask myself, I ask you, do you really know what you believe as a Christian? What are the fundamental essential things that we believe biblically? And, and this really helps us to grasp that. And again, I want to strongly emphasize so there's no misunderstanding or no confusion, confusion that nothing has changed. We've simply strengthened what we already have. I also want to mention this, and I say this with love and hopefully with tenderness. This process of reviewing this, this is not a time for you to say, you know, I've never agreed with the church about that. Okay, you may have disagreements with us as a church. Hopefully you've talked with one of the pastors about those disagreements. That's not what this process is about. It's not for you to go in there and to say, well, I know that's what you believe, but I really don't agree with that. Let me give you an obvious example. You may not believe in eternal security. You may think that a person can lose their salvation. I respect that. Hopefully that's something that you're willing to discuss with us. But that is not what this church holds to. Our church has always held strongly to the belief that we believe the Bible teaches 
the eternal security of the believer, also known as the perseverance of the saints. We've held to that. It's strongly stated here. So you may disagree with it, but that's not what this process is about. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a copy of this, and I want you to ask yourself this question. And this would be especially true for those of you who have been part of this church body for a long period of time. Is this statement of faith consistent with the biblical positions that this church has always taught and held to? Let me say that again. I want you to ask yourself as you read through this, is this statement of faith consistent with the biblical positions that this church has always taught and held to? The pastors and elders believe it is, but as I shared with you back in September, we have a form of church government known as elder-led congregationalism. The elders lead, but the congregation makes the last decision, makes the final decision. So again, you will be voting on this at the annual meeting in January. So I think that's a really important thing. And so I wanted to take some time this morning to explain that to you. Well, let's move on to the message this morning. And if you have a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn to the book of Ephesians, which we've been going through, working through verse by verse. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, will be the biblical text that we are dealing with this morning. Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32. In those verses, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. So they may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. As fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, as you read through, look through, Verses 25 through 32, these are some wonderful principles and commands. You look through this and you say, boy, these are things that I need to do. These are things that I need to obey. And you are correct. However, what I really want to convey in this message is you can't obey these commands and principles until you have first understood what it means to put off the old self and to put on the new self, which we looked at in depth in the previous two messages. And so our first point this morning is put off the old and put on the new. And I'm just going to summarize very briefly what we've looked at in the last two messages. Salvation. Salvation is a spiritual union 
with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection that can also be described as the death of the old self and the resurrection of the new self who now walks in newness of life. We died with Christ. We have risen with Christ. We have become new creatures in Christ. We looked at verses 22 through 24 of this chapter, chapter 4. Where Paul says to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. As I shared with you last week. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. The old has gone. The new has come. We have crucified the old man. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's what it means to be a Christian. We die to the old nature, to the old man, and we put on a new man. Yes, sin sin still resides within us. But your union with Christ, your new identity in him is not simply a change. It is a transformation. You are totally transformed into a new creature in Christ. And as I shared with you, because there is some misunderstanding in this among some who teach on this subject. There isn't two of us inside of us. We're not schizophrenic Christians. It's not the good me and the bad me. And sometimes I'm the good me. And sometimes I'm the bad me. I'm not two different people. I'm one new creation creature in Christ. Yes, I war against the sin that is still there. But I am a new man. You are a new man. You are a new woman. In Christ, when you come to know him as Savior. So it is not the addition of a new self to an old self. It is one new self. The old self has been crucified. It has died. Yes, sin remains, but it remains with the new self. A key, or as I shared with you, this is taught throughout the New Testament. But key passages, key passages to always keep in mind. Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, and Romans 6. Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, and Romans 6. In Romans 6, 11 through 13, I shared it with you last week. I want to share it again because it is such a seminal, such an important passage on this subject. Paul write, writes to the churches in the area of Rome and says in the same way, count yourselves. Reckon yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. What a key thought there. Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Well, the Apostle Paul begins the last paragraph of chapter 4 with the key word, therefore. I mentioned this at the very end of the sermon last week. It is so key here. Therefore sets the stage for everything else. Therefore is based on what he just said in verses 17 through 24 and on what he's already written in the first half of the book. So, he gives us these principles. He gives us these commands. And not only are they principles and commands to be obeyed, but they are the evidence that you have put off the old and put on the new. They are the evidence that you are truly reborn, that you are truly a new creation in Christ. Let me make a statement upon which this entire sermon hinges. The reliable evidence of a person's salvation is not just a past experience of receiving Christ, but a present life that reflects Christ. Let me say that again. The reliable evidence of a person's salvation is not just a past experience of receiving Christ, but a present life that reflects Christ. Someone can say, I asked Jesus into my heart when I was 10 years old. But if they never go to church, they have no desire for the word of God, no desire for prayer. They live any way they want to live. I say to you, that person is probably not saved. I don't care. And I say this lovingly. I don't care that they said they asked Jesus into their heart when they were 10 years old. If there's no evidence of that, they're not reborn. Certainly salvation begins with the invitation to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. But if that genuinely happens in a person's heart, they are transformed and they will, they will, they will give evidence of a new life. That's what this is about. Many years ago, at Grand Rapids Baptist College, which is now Cornerstone University, had a very godly professor there named John Balio. He taught in the college, also in the seminary. And all these years later, I still remember something that he said. remember a number of things he said, but there was something he said that has always stuck with me. He was speaking on this particular subject, and he said this. No fruit, no life, no salvation. If there is no fruit in a person's life, then there is no new life, and there is no salvation. No fruit... No life, no salvation. Do you know who said this? Do 
you know who taught this most bluntly, most strongly? It was Jesus himself. In the Sermon on the Mount, and you can check this out later for yourself, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, watch out. Watch out for false teachers. For they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, by their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, a good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree, this is what Jesus said, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Now, in this passage, in verses 25 through 32, there is a key word and two key verses on which really everything else kind of fits into. The word we've already looked at, it is the word therefore. Therefore, since you are putting off the old self and putting on the new. And then verse 30. Verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's interesting. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is simply called the Spirit, capital S, in a number of places. He is also referred to as the Spirit of God, but only in a few places is he referred to as the Holy Spirit of God. And that's the title given to him in this passage. You see, holiness is the foundational attribute of God. Everything flows from God's holiness. When the angels fly in heaven right now, do you know what they cry out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. They don't cry out, love, 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 grace, 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 as important as those things are. No, they say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty because in his holiness, everything he does, his love is perfect and without sin. His grace is perfect and without sin. This is the Holy Spirit of God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It is the Holy Spirit who lives in you. It is the Holy Spirit who applied the work of Christ to your life. It is the Holy Spirit who has sealed you so that you are God's forever, kept for the day of redemption. I could do a whole sermon. You could do a whole sermon on what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit. But let me give you a very simple definition 
based on this text, you grieve the Holy Spirit when you do not live like the new person that you really are. When you start living like the old man or the old woman that you used to be. When you live your life for this world and not for God, it grieves the Holy Spirit. Because he recreated you. He made you a new person in Christ. So live like the new person that you are. The next key verse is verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In the midst of everything else we do as a new creature in Christ, we are to be known by, we are to give evidence of tender-hearted kindness in everything. Knowing how much God forgave us, let us so forgive others. We are to be constantly aware of, constantly mindful of the fact that God has forgiven us of everything in Christ. All my sins are forgiven. God bears with me every day, even when I have sinful thoughts, even when I have sinful attitudes and motives. I fail Him. There are days when I don't acknowledge Him like I should. There are times when I forget him. And he always, always forgives me. Oh, so let us forgive one another. Let us forgive one another. So with that in mind, we come to our second point this morning. And that is evidence of new life in Christ. As we yield daily to the Holy Spirit of God, as we put off the old and put on the new, our lives will reflect the life of Jesus within us. These commands are not to be obeyed by simply saying, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this. I'm going to give it everything I have. That's not the thought. Oh Lord, here's the thought. Oh Lord, I need you. I yield to you. I surrender to you. I submit to you. I need the very power of Jesus flowing through me in order to obey these commands. Help me. Every moment of every day to put off the old and to put on the new. To live, to live like the new man or the new woman that I am. You see, Paul is writing, as you know, to the church in Ephesus. And as I shared with you a number of weeks ago, Ephesus was a very immoral city. We think of Corinth as the immoral city, but so is Ephesus. Now, this was a circular letter that would eventually go to numerous churches in Asia Minor, but it was first written to those in Ephesus. And so when these people came to Christ, they came to Christ out of very immoral lives. I was reading this week that many of them probably were slaves. And they had lived lives of lying, cheating, stealing, all kinds of immorality that they never knew any different. That's the way they lived. That's all they knew. They thought they were doing the right thing. And so they're having to see life completely different. Think about missionaries, especially missionaries in in tribal areas of the world. They come in among these tribes. And these tribes have lived for centuries, 
in lying, cheating, stealing, adultery, and all kinds of sins. I think of our longtime missionaries, Brad and Beth Buser, whom most of you know. Served for years among the Ateti tribe in Papua New Guinea. The Atetis were cannibals. They didn't just hate their enemies, they didn't just kill their enemies, they ate their enemies. They lied, they stole, they cheated, bred. It's told numerous stories of the rapes. Women were raped all the time. It was just a way of life with them. Adultery, cheating. Husbands cheating with all kinds of women. And so when Brad and Beth Buser come in with New Tribe's mission, they didn't just gather the Ateti together and say, hey, we've got a new way for you to live. Stop doing these things and start doing these things. That's not what they did, is it? No. First, they painstakingly took years to learn the heart language of the people. Then, when they were ready, they went through a chronological presentation of the gospel, starting from the book of Genesis and moving forward, so that those people could see how sinful they were and how desperately they needed a Savior, so that they could receive Christ as Savior and Lord, die to an old self and live to become a new self so that they could say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Then and only then could they disciple them and say, now give evidence. Give evidence that you are a new creation in Christ. With all of that in mind, Let's look at what Paul says here. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. If you are truly born again, you will have a genuine desire to tell the truth. Doesn't mean you will always do it, but you will see the importance of being truthful. You serve the God of truth. Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit in the New Testament is called the Spirit of Truth. In John 17, when Jesus prayed for us, he said, sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth. Your word is truth. So we are a people who serve a God of truth. We proclaim the Bible of truth. We are always to speak, not just speaking the words of the Bible, but wanting always what is true and honest and right. And notice, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. It should be done everywhere, but especially among the people of God with each other. Verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Paul is saying here, and this might be a little new for some of you, so hold on. Paul is saying you need to have the right kind of anger. You may be thinking, Pastor Tim, is there a right kind of anger? Yes, there is. 
There is such a thing as righteous anger. Notice what Paul says here. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Anger here, the word, does not mean a boiling over loss of temper. It doesn't mean somebody who just loses it and gets angry. Actually, it refers to a settled, strong conviction, which can be good and it can be sinful. What is righteous anger? Righteous anger is, let's say that I'm watching television and I'm watching a documentary on sex trafficking. And I see young women and young men who have been brought into this enslavement, this horrible, despicable, evil industry. And I just become angry that this would happen to people, that people would be so abused and so misused. Or I see the statistics on how many innocent, helpless, defenseless babies have been aborted. And it makes me righteously angry. So there is a righteous anger. But Paul says, be angry and do not sin. There is also a sinful anger. I can have, you can have, a determined Settled conviction that is sinful. You're mad at your spouse. You're angry with them. You're angry with someone here in the church. You're just angry with someone at your work. You're angry with someone in your extended family. When I do funeral services, I am always amazed that sometimes there has been long-standing anger between family members for years to the point that they don't even talk to each other. And often the funeral service is the first time they've been together in years. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Important principles here. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. If you are angry in a sinful way, Be careful with it. Deal with it that day. That's what Paul is teaching here. Deal with it that day. Because the devil loves to use anger to feed bitterness, resentment, to hold grudges, to get a strong foothold in your life. Verse 28. Let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. For the new creature in Christ, for the new creation, we have now learned this principle. We are now living this principle. Honest, we are to labor with good, honest, hard work, with always an eye to helping those in need. Stealing should never be a part of our lives. Again, these people in Ephesus may have stolen from their masters. They may have stolen from other people and didn't even think anything of it. But you know, right here this morning, there may be some of you who before you came to Christ, you used to steal. You cheated on your income tax. Maybe you cheated on the hours you turned in for your work. Maybe you took advantage of people to give you a better deal and even though you knew it was wrong. But let not that or 
Do not let that be found among those who name the name of Christ. That is not the evidence. The evidence, the evidence of a new creation is we've learned the value of good, honest, hard work, always with an eye to helping those who are in need. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Now, usually when we read this, we immediately think this refers to cursing, to swearing. Christians shouldn't swear and they shouldn't curse. And that is true. And that is true. I don't care how much cursing you hear in your workplace or how much people you know may do it, it's not right. You are to stand out by the way that you talk. But it means more than just cursing and swearing. Corrupting here means rotten fruit. It means fruit that has a stench to it. It is so old and so rotten. It means any kind of corrupting speech. It can refer to gossip, talking behind people's backs, Tearing people down. You know, sometimes Christian parents will say to their kids, you know, if I hear you swear, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. And then those same Christian parents go out and gossip. They talk about other people behind their backs and they tear other people down. Maybe their kids should say, Mommy and Daddy, I think you need your mouth washed out with soap. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But he gives wonderful principles of how to talk. Only say those things that are good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. We are only supposed to say things that build others up, even a rebuke, even a rebuke. May it be to build someone else up for good as fits the occasion that it may give grace, kindness, tenderness to those who hear. All of us here, we're all equally guilty to give evidence of a new life in Christ. There are some things we just shouldn't say. Sometimes the best thing to say is to not say it at all. Sometimes we say things to people that we know are going to prick them, hurt them, poke them, and they're just better left unsaid. Folks, and again, we're all guilty. We can all hold, bow our heads in shame and confession at this point. If we are to be new creatures in Christ, we've got to stop the petty criticism, the petty griping, and the petty complaining. It is so prevalent sometimes among the people of God. Well, we've looked at verses 30 and 32. So verse 31 really flows from verse 29. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Kind of sums it all up. You put on the new self. You're a new creation in Christ. Get rid of bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander, and malice. All those words describe people without Christ. 
don't live like that. Don't talk like that. Don't think like that. Let me say it one more time as we close. We're going to close right here. To understand and live out the principles taught in verses 25 through 32, we need to have a clear grasp of the first three and a half chapters of the book of Ephesians. We do. That our God and Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I'm going to have him put on the screen Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. What a key passage in the first part of the book. Just to remind us, just to remind us, here's you. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like, like the rest of mankind. And then those two words, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because of God, we are alive in Christ. We have been saved by grace. We have been present tense. Our spiritual position right now, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're going to close in just a moment with an old hymn. This doesn't always happen, but there is a hymn in this hymnal that goes along perfectly. You'll see the words on the screen and I want you to really think about them as you sing this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, but we have the mind of Christ. Incredible thought. I mentioned it last week. But we have the mind of Christ. This is the hymn, May the Mind of Christ My Savior. And I want you to listen. It says, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. By his love and power controlling all I do and say. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour. So that all may see I triumph only through his power. Oh, that's it. So that everyone will see that I triumph only through the power of Christ. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting, self-abasing. This is victory. May I run the race before me, strong and brave to face the foe, looking only unto Jesus as I onward go. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for these glorious, Holy Spirit-inspired principles and commands impress upon us that we can only obey them, only live them as we die to the old self 
and live like the new person that you have recreated us to be. Oh, Lord, help us every moment of every day to be yielding to the Holy Spirit who lives within us, to Christ who is our power and strength and in whose name we pray. Amen.